In July of 2021, two employees of Milestone Materials arrived at a quarry in La Crosse, Wisconsin. As they drove up to the entrance, they came upon the bodies of three young men. They'd all been fatally shot execution style. According to historical archives of the local library, it was the first triple homicide in nearly 30 years. The news sparked a painful reminder of a decades-old case that ripped a family apart and then simply fizzled out. Hello, and thank you for listening. We did it, y'all. We finally made it to episode 100 and the year 2024. Happy New Year. My goal for 2024 is to get this plant looking how it was when I bought it before my cats started eating it. Anyways, unfortunately, this case is going to be a two-parter, so this is part one but I think it is definitely deserving of the extra time and attention to detail. So let's just get into it. When residents of the Brookview Mobile Home Park awoke on September 26, 1992, nothing could have prepared them for the news that was about to come. Off Highway 1461, east of La Crosse, no one in the community had seen or heard anything unusual. Unbeknownst to all of them, a tragedy was waiting to be discovered. 27-year-old Rocky Bork and his wife lived in the mobile home park, and for one reason or another, decided to walk across the street to his mother's home. He knocked, but no one answered. To his surprise, the door was unlocked, so he made his way in. The home was eerily silent and nothing was out of place until Ricky's eyes finally landed on the body of a woman in the living room. His older sister, 29-year-old Suzette Friedenland. Sue had been in town for less than 12 hours. The night prior, she'd made the drive from Minneapolis with her two young children. Her six-year-old daughter and two-year-old son were found wandering the home, confused and fortunately unharmed. When Ricky walked down the hall to his mother's bedroom, he found her and his stepfather in bed, deceased, still in their nightgowns. No signs of a struggle. Nothing was stolen, and nothing was left behind. And after brutally taking the lives of every adult in the home, the killer made sure to spare the lives of the children. Suzette May Bork was one of four children, born on October 29, 1962 in La Crosse, to Alvin and Celia May. After graduating from Logan High in the spring of 1981, she moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota, where Alvin had moved after he split with Celia. Suzette briefly attended Bethel, a Christian college 15 minutes from the city. It was presumably in Minneapolis that Sue eventually met James Friedenland. They were married, and in 1986, Sue gave birth to their first child, a daughter, Jessica. Within a year, the couple had split, and Sue moved with her daughter back to La Crosse. James and Sue eventually reconciled, but then in 1989, while pregnant with their second child, Sue filed for divorce. She confided in a friend named Rebecca Brinkman that James had threatened to kill her if she didn't return to Minneapolis. While Sue lived in La Crosse for those few months, her mother, Cell, was happy. Cell never liked James and believed he was capable of violence. She didn't want her daughter getting back together with him. 
Sel complained to other relatives that James treated her and other members of their side of the family like dirt. When Sel bought clothing for her grandchildren, apparently James wouldn't let them keep it. According to Sel, he didn't think it was good enough. Sue eventually returned to Minneapolis and reconciled with James. They purchased a home in the northern part of Minneapolis, a three-bedroom, one-bath on North Logan Avenue, built in 1962. Sue gave birth the following year to a boy, Matthew, in 1990. With James working a blue-collar job, money might have been a little tight, and Sue didn't want to depend on James financially 100%. So, she started her own business, a daycare. Sue was now able to raise her children at home and get some money on the side while watching some local kids. A neighbor recalled watching her take care of the kids. Quote, she'd wave at you when she'd take those little ones for walks. She was awful nice. In May of 1991, James Friedenland decided to take out a life insurance policy on Sue. He was the sole beneficiary and would receive $150,000 if Sue happened to die. Six months later in November, James took out a second life insurance policy on Sue for $50,000. Today, those policies would be equivalent to more than $450,000. News of the triple homicide made the front page the following day. The La Crosse Tribune titled their story, Three in Family Slain, printed on September 27, 1992. Neighbors identified the deceased couple as Leroy and Sel Weibel, along with her adult daughter, Sue Friedenland. Sheriff Halverson told the press it appeared that the victims had been shot, but no gun was found in the trailer. Authorities believed at the time that the shooting was related to a domestic incident. Residents were shocked. They hadn't heard gunshots or any other signs of distress or violence. One resident stated that the Weibels were good neighbors. No one ever had any issues with them. She said, quote, They were the kind of people you would want to have in a trailer park. I just don't believe it. This is scary. This is a family-oriented trailer park. The sheriff declined to say if they had any suspects yet, but they did say they were on the lookout for one person they wanted to question, a 34-year-old man driving a silver Plymouth Champ with Minnesota license plates. That man would soon be identified as James Friedenland, the estranged husband of Sue. The La Crosse Tribune found that Sue had actually filed for divorce in May of 1989, three years ago, but the court filings had stopped there. The bodies of Sue, Leroy, and Sel were taken to the Wisconsin State Crime Laboratory in Madison. There, pathologist Robert W. Huntington III determined their cause of death. None of them had been shot. All three had suffered multiple blows to the head and upper body. The beating had been so severe that authorities on the scene assumed that the victims had been fatally shot. Investigators suspected that James Friedenland could have been responsible for the murders almost immediately. The day after the victims' bodies were discovered, authorities made the 175-mile journey to Minneapolis. For four hours, they questioned James, trying to poke holes in his alibi. James said he hadn't left Minneapolis at all, 
On the night of September 25th, he apparently watched some videos and read a book. And by 8.10 a.m. the next morning, he was attending a group Bible study in Minneapolis. James gave verbal consent for officers to search his vehicle, which was immediately impounded and held until a search warrant was secured. Inside James's car, there was no evidence of blood, a weapon, or anything that traced back to the Weibel's mobile home. But authorities found one thing unusual, the mileage. James had gotten his vehicle serviced 10 days prior to the murders, and over that 10-day period, James drove a lot. He told authorities he'd only driven to work and for church-related activities, but there was 381 miles that James couldn't account for, that he couldn't explain. This stuck out like a sore thumb to investigators, who determined that a trip from his home to the Weibels was a maximum of 175 miles, or 350 miles down and back. However, even though James's alibi was incredibly weak, home alone on the night of the murders, and he couldn't account for those miles, authorities couldn't arrest him for that alone. They still didn't have physical evidence pointing to James. No fingerprints, no weapon, no tangible signs at all that James had been inside that mobile home, only a strong possibility that he could have been. When Leroy, Sell, and Sue were buried in the cross on October 1st, James did not attend, but he did show up to court a week later, attempting to get custody of his children back. In the meantime, the children's custody was granted to Sue's sister, who lived nearby. At the hearing, a La Crosse County judge stated that James Friedenland was the prime suspect in a triple slaying, and refused to allow the children to return to him or have any contact with him while the investigation continued. James's lawyer fired back that there was no evidence linking his client to the slayings, and no statements alleging he was a bad father. Counsel representing the county's human services department, which has a say in where the children go, stated that James continues to be a suspect, adding, There is some physical evidence that could link the father to the crime scene. If the defendant was present, it would indicate that he has neglected the children, at the very least. On another note, James hadn't contacted that human services department about the whereabouts of his children until days after the murders. At this hearing, the defense claimed that James had been in shock when police questioned him for hours, but that he, quote, adamantly denied being involved, and quote, there is just no evidence that he was involved. James had fully cooperated with the investigation and was ready to give blood, saliva, and hair samples. At least, that's what his attorney said. A three-day trial on placing the children was then set for November 4th, required by state law. District Attorney Scott Horn said he hoped the state crime lab would have evidence to report by then. The evidence he was referring to was obtained from the crime scene and James Friedenland's car. The custody battle wouldn't be hashed out until November 23rd, the judge approved a six-month order to prevent the children to live with their paternal grandmother in Minneapolis, James's mother, just a mile down the road from where James now lived alone. A lawyer representing the children and the authorities agreed that it would be best to allow the children to live closer to home so that the daughter could at least go back to school. It was a win for James, who could now visit his children as long as his mother was present, 
What happened in the courthouse just before the hearing started unfortunately didn't make it to the judge. If it had, maybe James would not have been allowed to see his children at all. Or maybe it was something super minor but this is all we know. A photographer for a local news channel was snapping photos of James walking through the lobby when James suddenly pushed him backwards. We don't know any details other than that because both men refused to talk to reporters about it. But we did get the opinion of Sue's sister, who had custody of the children up until this point. She said she was disappointed by the agreement. She called her brother-in-law, James, a ticking time bomb and stated, He shouldn't be allowed to see them at all. In the minds and hearts of Cell, Sue, and Leroy's families, they were all pretty certain that James could be responsible. But James wasn't officially identified as a prime suspect until eight months after the murders. In an affidavit filed in April of 1993, authorities laid out a number of accusations. These accusations didn't include criminal charges, but highlighted a large amount of circumstantial evidence about how and why James Friedenland would want to kill his wife. For the Minneapolis Star Tribune, Pat Doyle provides new details about the slayings and what investigators had so far. And this will be my source because unfortunately I don't have access to a 30-year-old affidavit that no longer exists. Printed on the 20th of May with the title, Police Say Lack of Clues is Best Clue in Triple Killing. Quote, For a place where three people were beaten to death, the home was remarkably lacking in physical clues that could help identify the killer, police say. The body of a Minneapolis woman, her bludgeoned head wrapped in a rug, was found in the living room near the door of a mobile home in La Crosse, Wisconsin. The bodies of her mother and her mother's husband were lying on a bed. A pillow covered the man's badly beaten head. Two young children of the Minneapolis woman were discovered unharmed in the home. Police interviewed the older child, a six-year-old girl, but declined to say what they learned. Nearly eight months after it occurred, the triple slaying remains unsolved. Now, authorities say the very lack of physical evidence, such as fibers or hairs inside the home, provides them with a clue. The killer may have relied on a knowledge of forensic science to cover his or her tracks. Pursuing that theory, police recently obtained a warrant to review transcripts of police science courses taken by James Friedenland. In an affidavit last month supporting the warrant, investigators for the first time publicly identified Friedenland as a likely perpetrator of the triple homicide. Friedenland declined to return phone calls this week, His attorney, Earl Gray, said Friedenland has denied involvement in the killings. Attorney Gray ridiculed the police theory, calling it the product of desperation, and stated, They don't find any evidence, and now they're saying he's such a smart person. Took these courses. That's the reason there isn't any evidence. Give me a break. Those are basic elementary courses. James Friedenland's father had worked as a Minneapolis police sergeant and was now retired. That might have sparked his interest in the criminal justice system. During the late 80s, James took police science courses at Hennepin County Community College. Prosecutors wanted to know exactly what courses James had taken and what was taught. They said those documents were needed to determine whether the coursework would afford James the necessary knowledge to commit such brutal murders without leaving much evidence. 
On top of that, the affidavit stated that the Weibels were security conscious. Outside, the couple had a motion sensor light and a peephole on the front door. Not only was the killer potentially let in, but they left behind hundreds of dollars found in Sal's purse and Leroy's wallet. But still, the killer took the time to wrap Sue's head in a carpet and cover Leroy's head with a pillow. Authorities believe this was an attempt to hide the worst injuries from the Friedenland children. The affidavit stated, The covering of Leroy Weibel's head and wrapping of Suzette Friedenland's head would suggest a sensitivity on the part of the perpetrator to trauma, which would be sustained by children observing the bloodied corpse of their grandparents and mother. Injuries so severe, police at first thought it was a shooting. Without any physical evidence, prosecutors are trying to compile all the circumstantial evidence they could, including documents detailing the deterioration of the Friedenlands' marriage. According to the affidavit, James moved out of the family home in 1989. Sue then went to the court to demand child support. According to attorney Gray, the couple ended up moving back in together, which makes it seem like they were able to put their differences aside and get along, but a letter from Sue paints a completely different picture. The letter was mailed to Sue's friend Heidi on September 7, 1992. This letter in part was published in the Cross Tribune. Dear Heidi, And Jim is so abrasive, cynical, sarcastic, demeaning, and mocking towards me. In parentheses, he has always been like this. But he claims he loves me. And he has both feet in this marriage, but... He is so mean. He mocks how I feel on the things I do and say. He's been bringing up my mom in every argument to say how I am exactly like her, quote, selfish, and how Jess is turning out exactly like me. He throws so many innuendos at me, but with him I can never defend myself because he has me as being the, quote, bad guy, the guilty one, the one who wants to bail out, just like her mother because she wasn't happy but I'm so scared to get out. I lose my business, my, in parentheses, our house, our van, one half, in parentheses, rather less than, of the finances, and Jim would be a jerk. He would let me lose all of those things just to get back at me. The kids would lose their daddy and I couldn't afford a divorce, so Jim wouldn't be made to pay child support. Oh man, there is so much more going on than I could possibly write you. On the one-year anniversary of the triple homicide, the La Crosse Tribune spoke with authorities to get an update on the case. By this point, no charges had been filed. No one had been arrested. But investigators were confident the crime was solved. District Attorney Scott Horn told them, quote, The only way to describe it is it's a circumstantial case. There is no smoking gun. No eyewitnesses. No confession. The evidence has allowed us to eliminate certain people and certain types of people, end quote. The children of Leroy and Sel Weibel had been waiting patiently for justice. Leroy's oldest daughter, Terry, told the Tribune, quote, You'd like to see it put to rest. That's the thing. It's always going to be in your mind. We'd really like to see whoever did it caught. We feel that there's a good possibility that there will be an arrest soon. I guess we've just got to hope. Sel Weibel's sister published a letter in the Tribune at one point talking directly to the killer. Here is what she wrote. 
On September 26, 1992, Celia, Leroy, and Suzette lost their lives, and our family hasn't forgotten how they were brutally murdered. Three loving people. It hasn't gotten any easier to forget. Why did this happen to our family? That's the question we ask a million times a day for the past year. We still don't know who or why. There wasn't any reason why these three people should have died. No reason at all. There isn't a day that we don't think of Celia, Cell, Leroy, and of Suzette. And of Suzette's two small children, Jessica and Matthew. It's still very hard to believe that they are gone. We would never wish this kind of hurt on anybody. This is very hard to cope with and very hard to forget. Because of somebody, we lost a big part of our family. But our memories will never fade away, and that you can't take away from our family. God is taking care of Celia, Leroy, and Suzette. And at the end, God will get you. Thou shall not kill. On October 12th, James Friedenlin left his job as a maintenance worker at McLean Midwest, an air conditioning systems company in Minneapolis. Local authorities were waiting for him, arrest warrant in hand. James was booked into the Hennepin County Jail and held without bond, charged with three counts of first-degree murder. At a press conference in La Crosse, Sheriff Halverson said there wasn't a dramatic uncovering of new evidence that led to James's arrest. The investigation had simply come to an end. Quote, The things that needed to be looked at to be sorted out basically have been done. Halverson stated that the nearly 13-month-long investigation involved as many as 100 people, including local police and FBI investigators. The criminal complaint against James was 23 pages long. A fellow church member and friend of the Friedenlands, Jane Patton, was actually visited by Sue before she left Minneapolis for the last time, on September 25th, 1992. Quote, I gave her plants, hostas, to plant in her shade garden under her tree. She brought the kids from daycare and we had a real nice visit. Jane was completely unaware that Sue was about to travel to La Crosse, and she claimed that if Sue was upset and didn't plan on returning to Minneapolis, she probably would have mentioned it to her. However, it is possible that Sue knew that Jane would mention this to James. This neighbor and friend, Jane, was heavily involved in the church that the Friedenlands attended, but Sue was not as nearly active in the church as her husband, James. Jane also described James as caring, sincere, and sensitive. Jane obviously wasn't one of the people Sue felt comfortable confiding in about her marital issues. And there is plenty of evidence of Sue confiding to friends and relatives through letters and phone calls that James had threatened violence against Sue. Minneapolis residents that knew the Friedenlands were stunned and had a completely different perspective of James than relatives of Sue and La Crosse. The news of James's arrest for the murders completely shocked them. Annette Shannon lived next door to the Friedenlands. Her dining table was located under a window that faced the Friedenlands' kitchen windows. She stated, quote, I never heard an argument. You would be able to hear it, especially with the windows open. You can hear a door slam. But there was nothing. They probably heard more out of my house. It just blew me away. I started bawling. I just can't believe it. It's eerie. He's such a nice guy. 
The evening before the murders, when Sue and her children were 30 miles outside of Minneapolis, on their way to lacrosse, Sue realized she'd forgotten her purse and driver's license at home. According to a friend, Sue told her that she couldn't go back home to get it because she didn't want to face Jim again. And I think this was the same friend that Sue ended up stopping at in North Lacrosse before heading to her mother's. She apparently also told this friend, quote, I hate Jim and Jim hates me. Sue also reportedly said, that James was nuts, he was fanatically religious, that Sue wanted out of the marriage and had no control over financial matters. Included in the affidavit against James Friedenlin was details of the autopsy report. It indicated that the victims were beaten to death by repeated blows to the head with a solid linear object, possibly with an edge. However, no weapon had been found. A coroner determined that the deaths probably occurred between 12.30 a.m. to 1 a.m. on September 26th. James told police he'd been in bed in Minneapolis by 9 p.m. that night and hadn't got up until 7.15 a.m. the 26th. A neighbor did report seeing James at the grocery store 45 minutes before he claimed he was asleep. When that neighbor returned, she said she took her dog out every 30 to 60 minutes between 8.30 p.m and midnight, or possibly as late as 1 a.m. She said she didn't see any lights on in James Friedenland's home, as if he was sound asleep or wasn't home at all. When James was finally transferred to a La Crosse County jail in late November of 1993, his bond was set at $1 million cash. A trial was set for March of 1994. Up until then, the state and defense fought over what evidence could be submitted to a potential jury. In February, District Attorney Scott Horn filed a motion that referred to an incident in October of 1987. It stated that James Friedenland attempted to sexually assault a woman in Minneapolis, apparently climbing into her bed and touching her after drinking with the woman's husband. When Sue learned of this assault, she separated from James. She also reported it to the Western Wisconsin Legal Services and told her mother so. In addition to that incident, prosecutors wanted a second incident involving James's violent nature admitted as well. At a camping trip in 1992, witnesses said that James grabbed a piece of firewood and used it to beat a baby raccoon until it was convulsing. Witnesses said James would have killed the raccoon if they hadn't intervened. On the defense's side, attorney Earl Gray was trying to tie the triple homicide to potentially a serial killer to another unsolved murder in La Crosse, a murder most likely committed by an outsider to the community and remains unsolved to this day. 31-year-old Linda Wegner was a nurse aide at the Bethany St. Joseph Care Center, an elderly folks' home. She worked there alongside Sue's mother, Sal Weibel. Linda was born and raised in Boston and had been previously married to a man in Massachusetts. In 1987, she and her second husband of three years, Glenn Wegner, purchased a plot of land. They planted 130 trees and hoped to build a new home there someday. In April of 1988, the couple moved to a secluded home on Zion Road 
and Southeast Lacrosse. Apparently, the only real action happening around the property was down the hill, where construction workers were building condominiums. On April 19th, Linda had the day off from work. As her one-year-old daughter slept in her crib that morning, Linda either heard or saw a man outside the home. Surveillance video captured a man driving an older model pickup truck near the Wegner's home, but authorities could never identify who this man was. At 10.30 a.m., Linda called the agent that had been renting the couple the home and asked if the agent had ordered driveway repair work. From that point on, we don't know exactly what happened, but Linda was presumed dead by noon because when her husband called, she failed to pick up. When Glenn returned home around 5.30 p.m., there were no signs of forced entry. He found Linda's body in the bathroom. Her throat had been slashed. Their one-year-old daughter was still in her crib, unharmed. Authorities said a small number of items were taken from the home a blue and white quilted bedspread, a pair of sheets and pillowcases, a black purse, and a woman's red robe. According to a lacrosse judge, the only similarities in these cases is the fact that both cases involve a female victim. But James Friedenland's defense team was trying to make it seem like the same people or person that killed Linda Wagner also killed three other people, Leroy, Sell, and Sue. And James Friedenland's defense tried to make this argument by saying that Sel Weiber was heavily affected by Linda's murder. Sel apparently expressed fears to several witnesses and, quote, lived in constant fear that she would be next. These fears that Sel expressed may have been exaggerated and dramatized by the defense team. But working with someone for at least a couple years, I believe they worked together, who is randomly and violently murdered out of nowhere would make anyone fear in fear of their life, especially if the county hadn't caught the killer. These fears that Sal expressed were perfectly rational, in my opinion. They had no idea who the killer could be, and she had every right to be concerned that a killer was on the loose. It wouldn't make much sense for the killer to then target Sal, her husband, and Sue. Whoever killed Linda Wagner knew that she was home alone in a secluded area with nothing nearby but some noisy construction. The killer had also made sure to steal Linda's purse, while hundreds of dollars was left behind at the Weibel's mobile home. On February 17, 1994, a Lacrosse County judge ruled that the defense could not connect the unsolved murder of Linda Wagner to the triple homicide, stating that the cases are unrelated. This was a blow to the defense, but the judge also gave a blow to the prosecutors. He ruled that the prosecution could not bring in claims of James sexually assaulting a woman in 87 or the story about him nearly beating a baby raccoon to death in 92 because they were irrelevant to the murders. The defense had another trick up their sleeve, though, to push the blame away from James Friedenlin. In a motion filed a week later, they implicated Sue's brother, Rocky Bork, who discovered the bodies. The motion read, in part, quote, Rocky Bork was the perpetrator of the homicide in this case. Rocky had motive and opportunity to commit these murders. Certainly, he was in close proximity to the crimes when they were committed. The defense claimed that Rocky was in deep financial trouble with a, quote, 
$500 a month marijuana habit that So, his mother, had refused to continue giving him money and that Rocky didn't have an alibi. However, Rocky was eliminated as a suspect early on in the investigation. The defense was grasping at straws. The murder trial was expected to start on March 7, 1994, but a few days before, prosecutors received a critical new piece of evidence, hair samples, found in the Weibel's home, apparently tying James Friedenlin to the scene of the murders. The judge ruled that the evidence would be allowed at trial. The defense was furious and appealed the decision. Friedenlin's attorney stated, quote, There is no excuse for this untimely notice. Mr. Horn might say the state crime lab is busy and has no control over it. So what? The party to this case is the state of Wisconsin, and the state of Wisconsin has violated the discovery rules. Being too busy is not good cause. District Attorney Scott Horn said the delay was not intentional. 400 hairs were collected from the Weibel home. They were sent to the crime lab by mid-October of 1992. The last batch of hairs, about 70, were still being examined by February of 1994. In that batch, four of the hairs were found to be a match with James Friedenlin. Convicting someone based on hair samples alone rarely, if ever, works. However, this was the only physical evidence the state had, and advanced DNA testing wasn't available at the time, and even if they did have it at that time, if the hair didn't have a root, they wouldn't be able to get DNA from it. According to forensic experts, quote, hair comparisons are not a basis for absolute personal identification. It should be noted, however, that because it is unusual to find hairs from two different individuals that exhibit the same microscopic characteristics, a microscopic association or match is the basis for a strong association. So either James Friedenland's hair was carried to the crime scene by his children, or Sue, all the way from Minneapolis, or James had shed the hair at the scene during the murders. For a largely circumstantial case, this was a huge win for the prosecution. They told the Lacrosse Tribune, quote, In all honesty, this is the sort of evidence we were pushing for. The head of the crime lab defended his findings over the phone. He said many factors are used in comparing hairs under a microscope, including color, diameter, length, and inner shaft features. He stated, quote, we can't say that a hair came from an individual. We can say that it's consistent with their hair, and it has the same general pattern. Just like a lot of people have type A blood, a lot of people probably would have medium brown, medium length hair. The Wisconsin Court of Appeals decided not to hear the appeal made by Friedenland's defense, allowing the murder trial to go ahead after a slight delay. A judge scheduled jury selection for June 13th and expected the trial to last three weeks. Thank you so much for listening, and don't forget to tune in next week because I'll be diving super deep into James Friedenland's trial. And thank you so much to the new accomplices on Patreon, Miriam L. and Erica H. I was planning on launching my $5 Patreon tier on January 1st. However, I still have some catching up to do, so that is going to be put on hold until February for now. You can always join for free just to keep a lookout. Again, I hope you all had a good New Year's, and I hope you all have a good day, evening, or night. Goodbye.